it's Nick Brown here, Editor-in-Chief of ADC. I'm here with Rachel Egbeko, Senior Editor, and we're going to try something a little bit different from Atoms this time. We'll be talking about the papers in a dialogue rather than a monologue. This month's edition, February 2020, has a number of papers with the theme of prevention and protection. One area is a part of our role as paediatricians is discussed in paper by Hilary Cass and colleagues, which looks into the unique stresses to which paediatricians are subject. This is witnessed by inequitably high rates of care seeking for work associated mental health problems. I don't know whether this means paediatricians are better at acknowledging them or if the environmental is causal. And then we work in a unique setting and are very privileged to do so. The recent spotlight cases have certainly had a corroding effect on the recruitment rates. What did you think about this, Rachel? I was uh, very glad to see this paper, Nick, because uh, we know on the ground that you might say morale is low, that it's more difficult to enjoy your work as a paediatrician. There's a myriad of reasons why that might be. And I think the first step to trying to get to a better place, uh, not just for uh, us as paediatricians, aspiring paediatricians, but also uh, for our patients and uh, and their families, is to get to what is um, driving this this situation. What's the what are the underlying reasons? and then see what is it that we can do about it. And some of that is within our scope immediately, and some of that requires more conversations. So as a senior paediatrician, you can go onto the shop floor and by having explicit uh, acknowledgement of what it is that might be happening on the shop floor and responding to that, that's doable immediately. Other things maybe less so immediately, but we can start talking, for instance, with our patients and, uh, and parents and the public at large, what is it that people expect of us as paediatricians? What is it that's doable? What is it that we wish to achieve and come to a, a shared understanding thereof? There's something about prevention and protection in, in the choices that we've made. So if we now look slightly different area of prevention and, and see about something that we take for granted potentially, such as vaccinations, in this edition, Sarah Lang and others, uh, including Andy Pollard as senior author, describe the history of vaccinations in the UK. Now, this paper is important, I think, because of the highly successful current vaccination program that you have in the UK. We've forgotten or we may even have never known the diseases that were rife in previous years in the UK, but some of which are still rife. Uh, in many places in the world, uh, and others are threatening to have a comeback. So with your background, both in the UK and in global health, what was your, what was your take on this paper? Well, good question. I, I think above all else, I found it quite humbling um, to look at this very rich history or to be reminded of this very rich history and um, educated in the last 200 years of vaccinology have uh, achieved what I found quite moving. And what struck me was that um, far from resting on, on any laurels, the process is still continuing. And I find that exciting that the primary vaccination schedule hasn't, uh, hasn't run out of ideas or inspiration or research interest. 
I guess this sort of spans my career in paediatrics. The, the disease profile has completely changed. Um, and it is almost entirely due to the, the vaccination programme. So I found it very thought-provoking on many levels. I think it's a, a sign as well not to become complacent. Absolutely. Well, we could extrapolate that and look at the next two papers, which again are tangentially anyway related to prevention. Um, and but both relate to breastfeeding. Very different papers, um, but the common thread is that the WHO recommends exclusive breastfeeding up to six months of age, with continued breastfeeding beyond that with appropriate complementary foods up to two years of age or even longer than that. So we have two papers, one global health and one uh, UK centred, um, both of which remind us how far we really still have to go in this what one would have thought would be relatively straightforward issue. Um, the first is from Vietnam uh, by Nguyen and colleagues, which looked at the relative incidence, the rates um, of hospitalisation from predominantly from lower respiratory and acute gastroenteritic illnesses in children exposed to pre-lacteal and formula feeds against those who were exclusively breastfed. And the odds ratios showed a roughly 50% increase. Um, this isn't completely new territory, but this was elegantly done and just reminds us of how effective universal implementation would be. The UK paper takes a very different slant and looks at ways uh, or one way of enhancing uptake in terms of offering uh, incentives in the form of vouchers. So this was part of a cluster randomised trial in the northwest of England. Um, and the authors, Anyoke and colleagues, showed that at a cost of approximately £1,000 per baby, feeding rates increased by about 6%. Now, this qualified for cost-effectiveness using standard quality-of-life cut-offs, um, but you could look at this through a slightly different lens and um, ask why we're in a position where we're needing to uh, look, look at vouchers as an incentive. Well, what, what, was, what was your slant on this, Rachel? It's several uh, things came to, to my neck when I was reading the papers. Uh, the first one I was concerned about as having to reiterate that breastfeeding actually has health benefits and I'm glad the, the group uh, in Vietnam has, uh, has made that very tangible. So um, there is, there is a, an evidence base for the, for the WHO recommendations and they're still valid. The message that they give is, is then not necessarily just applicable to Vietnam or um, countries of low and middle income. Uh, I would say that that has a worldwide uh, implication. And then we see in the UK, which arguably is not a low middle income country, that we're looking at giving um, mothers vouchers to increase the uptake of breastfeeding. And I find that saddening um, in a way, and that we're in that situation. Um, what it does show is that uh, it's a viable route. If that's a route that we have to take, then we can we can walk that. But to me, uh, the underlying message um, from both uh, papers was that uh, we need 
uh, to look at ways that we can um, better uh, take care of our, uh, our babies and their future by uh, promoting breastfeeding in whichever way that that is helpful. I think we've done, done some of that by uh, being clear that um, in archives uh, we don't endorse commercial formulas. Absolutely. Stretching the prevention analogy a little bit further, there's another pair of papers looking at medicinal, and I use inverted commas around the medicinal products and semantics. So using diarrhea as an example, it's a common problem. There's very clear cut WHO guidance um, in terms of rehydration, maintaining nutritional intake and zinc. It's very simple. But as it's so common, it's perhaps not completely surprising that there's a market for over-the-counter alternative remedies. Um, and this has flourished to some extent unfettered. So we start with a relatively straightforward systematic review of meta-analysis um, by Flores and colleagues who looked at the group of substances which are most widely used, gelatine, tannates, um, um, which showed no evidence of effect in terms of the most common diarrheal outcomes, duration, stool frequency, and so on. The next paper is intriguing. Hugo Bart and colleagues look at the reasons that these products have actually been able to forge their own market. And like a lot of this, it comes down to terminology, the fine line between what is and what is not counted as a medicine. The laws in the EU are relatively relaxed on what are called medicinal devices. These are products um, which are intended for disease alleviation, modification of anatomy or physiological modification. In the US, the rules are much stricter um, and even medical devices need to go through much more robust uh, endorsement. So the authors looked at which loopholes that the gelatin tannate and tindalized probiotics, the other main group, were able to um, use, in which they wouldn't have otherwise been able to do had they been sold or marketed in the US. Where, um, And this was eye-opening, I think is fair to say. What did you think about their findings, Rachel? Yeah, I'd say eye-opening is, uh, is quite apt. To, uh, to say. So I think as pediatricians, uh, we, we, we might be used to prescribing medicines that may not necessarily be licensed uh, for children or uh, under a certain age. Um, we're probably less uh, clued in that um, some medicines in inverted commas are actually medical devices and therefore have had a, dare I say, laxer process uh, in getting to the shelves. So there's an added stop to think in this instance. One uh, is an indication for the intervention. Is a medicine required or uh, is the medicine actually time? You don't need to do anything. And two, whether there is something uh, available, um, has that gone through uh, the appropriate checks and balances? And they may have gone through appropriate checks and balances for a device, but not for a medicine. So I think it's time for us as pediatricians to start looking at some small print. Mm. And coming to small, the last paper we might look to discuss is a rather lovely one, I'd say. Uh, it's one on lactate in babies. The paper here 
um, which is an Archimedes question posed by Dr. Jennifer, Jennifer Salvanos from Sheffield, was that, should we act on a high umbilical cord lactate in an otherwise healthy neonate? So this is a question that people might encounter uh, when they've just been called to look at the gas that was routinely done in a, in a baby that was born to them. There's no concerns either clinically nor from uh, their background. So what do you think, Nick? I love this paper. Um, I thoroughly enjoy the Archimedes section. And I thought this was just a great myth-busting study. And the bottom line, I guess, was just use common sense. Um, use your eyes, you apply common sense, um, and don't make something that isn't a problem into a problem. Um, undertake tests when they're likely to change management, not when they're going to cause confusion. Um, and that's a great aphorism, I think, um, and a great place to, to end. So thanks so much for listening, and be sure you read these papers and check the whole issue out both in print and look at what's happening on the website adc.bmj.com. We'll see you again next month. Bye. Bye for now.